you'd please pick up your church Bibles. We'll be reading from Luke chapter 13, starting at verse 10. Luke 13, starting at verse 10, that's page 1046 in the church Bible. 1046. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Again he asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. This is the word of the Lord. Right, well, we're looking this evening at a miraculous healing of a disabled woman, which is unique to Luke's Gospel. You won't find it in any of the other Gospels. And then two very short parables which Jesus taught, the parable of the mustard seed, which you'll also be able to find in Matthew and Mark's Gospels, but not John's, and the parable of the yeast, which is only also found in Matthew. Now, the first incident would have fitted in with the Old Testament expectation of the last days. So if you take a look at, um, if you take a look at the outline on the little diagram, which uh, um, in the Old Testament expectation was for a dramatic intervention of the Messiah to defeat Israel's enemy and establish the kingdom of God on earth. It was all very straightforward. They knew where they were, and there was only one thing to come the last day when the Old Testament prophecies would be fulfilled. The day of the Lord, as it was called, was expected to be one event at the end of their current era. But God had always had other plans. The New Testament expectation of the, the last days or the day of the Lord or the coming of the Messiah would be one, and not just one event, but two events there would be the cross before the crown. And although it had been predicted, they hadn't really latched onto that. Another way would be to rather look at it like people often do, as a kind of mountain range. The Old Testament, they look forward and they can just see one mountain range. But actually, there are two 
uh, sets of mountains to navigate. The first is when the Messiah comes, the second is when he comes again, and in between there is a high plain where we're living at the moment. So you see the, uh, the first coming was his birth as Jesus of Nazareth, and he had his life and his death and resurrection and ascension and the sending of his spirit, and these things achieved what we can now access, which is peace with God, being granted forgiveness and eternal life. And we've been living in this period of grace for the last 2,000 years, and everyone who's been born since then has the opportunity, the same opportunity, to connect with God through repentance and faith, so that the rule of God or the kingdom of God becomes real in their own life. And as it does in theirs individually, so it grows steadily throughout the world, often unnoticed, not featuring on the six o'clock news. So, we are not now, at the moment, in the new world or the new creation. We don't live at a time when there is a complete absence of the imperfect, including ourselves, so we live on those high plains, waiting between Jesus' first and second coming. And that's where we encounter now the disabled woman and her healing on the Sabbath. So it's Saturday, it's the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues and the woman was there and she had been crippled. Well, we might translate that today as disabled. She'd had a spirit for 18 years and she was bent over, we're told. She could not straighten up. We don't know exactly what she was suffering from, she may have been suffering from ankylosing spondylitis. I've practiced that. Um, or osteoporosis, as my late mother had, where a condition which will take many years to develop, and gradually your vertebrae seize up, and you curve over, and you almost get to the point where you're 90 degrees to the vertical and you ain't going to have that cured in a second any other way than Jesus doing it. And she straightened up immediately when Jesus said, you are set free from your infirmity. He put his hands on her. Immediately she straightened up and immediately she praised God. There was no other source who could do such a thing. Now, even though something truly wonderful had happened, Jesus' religious opponents, like the ruler of that synagogue, who was of the Pharisaic tendency, no doubt, they were still dead set against him. He was a rival. And so they claimed he had done wrong, and the line of approach they took on this occasion was that he had worked this miracle on the Sabbath, which was meant to be a day of rest. Now Jesus immediately seizes on their hypocrisy because he points out that they would untie their ox or donkey and lead it to drink on the Sabbath. So what's the problem in him freeing this woman from an incredibly debilitating illness on the Sabbath? Now it's interesting 
that the word used for setting free of the woman and the untying of the animals is exactly the same in the original. So Jesus is saying to them, you're doing the same as me. If you now claim I shouldn't do what you do, you're a hypocrite, which of course they were. The fourth commandment, though, was not meant to be quite as kind of absolutist, i.e. that the Sabbath was a day where you just basically sat with your arms crossed and did nothing all day. The Pharisees had distorted that in their teaching, though quite obviously not in their practice. Originally, you were allowed to do the minimal things needed for life, especially good deeds, and use the rest of the day for family and for family to learn and worship together. So the synagogue ruler here and other opponents of Jesus had to eat humble pie with their hypocrisy and false motives exposed. Now notice, and it's very important to notice this, his opponents never questioned his ability to do miracles. They accepted that he had done such. His miracles were almost always immediate, and complete. Now his opponents were not gullible, they were highly motivated in trying to sort of work out how he did this. They were often very clever and they couldn't see how such things were not supernatural. That leaves them with only one way out and that's where they went wrong. They tried to ascribe the good that Jesus is doing to malevolent supernatural powers rather than benevolent supernatural powers. I mean, how perverse is that? So desperate not to have to recognize the divine visitor among them, they portrayed him as an agent of the devil. Now, while we're here, it's worth just reflecting on why it is that Jesus does miracles. And there are two reasons. The first was to identify who he was. How on earth are we going to know that God has pitched up in human form unless he does something different? So, if you are in the first century and you're a Jew and you see Jesus creating out of nothing, controlling nature with a word, raising people from the dead, straightening out women like this in an instant, you'd think, now who in our history has done that? And you go back to Elijah and Elisha, who each raised a person from the dead, and to Moses, who said certain great plagues were going to happen, and they did happen. And they happened because God was behind those prophets saying, these guys are from me. So we read of the Apostle Peter speaking of Jesus before the Jerusalem crowd in Acts 2.22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. In other words, it's God's way of giving the thumbs up to what Jesus is saying and doing. This guy is from me, he's saying. 
And then, secondly, it's to illustrate what he'd come to do, to restore people to how God intended human beings to be. Now, here it is physical and mental, but it's also indicative of spiritual restoration, to be at peace with God, to be at one with him, because we have confessed our sins and received forgiveness. So Jesus' arrival on earth was something special. It was a real spectacular, you might say. But that's not, since his ascension, how his rule has grown, as these two parables show. The parable, first of all, of the mustard seed. We read verse 18, Jesus told them another parable. What is the kingdom of God like? He asks the question and he provides the answer. It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. So, it was said to be the smallest of all their seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree, a very large bush. Perhaps this species, Salvadora persica, is what Jesus had in mind. Sometimes it's called the mustard tree or the toothbrush tree, as its branches apparently make good toothbrushes, in case you wondered what people did before Oral-B was available. And once the tree has grown, the birds of the air come to perch in its branches. So the point of comparison here is not the seed in itself, but what happens when it is sown. A mustard seed was proverbially minute in Jesus' day, and it was the smallest seed used by these Palestinian farmers and gardeners at the time. But when the three-millimeter seed was planted, it grew to be the largest of all these garden plants, often three or four metres in height. We sometimes uh, say big trees from little acorns grow, which comes from the acorn seed growing over time into a huge oak tree. The point, then, of the parable lies in the contrast between this insignificant beginning and the largest of the garden plants which results. And so it is with the kingdom of heaven. Jesus then adds, it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. Now what Jesus was thinking then, and what any Jew who had reasonable knowledge of the Old Testament would uh, relate to, is of the image of the tree being used of a great empire, as it was in Ezekiel 17 and 31, and in Daniel chapter 4. Again, suggesting that the kingdom of heaven will expand worldwide. Now, those Old Testament passages also contain the picture of birds in its branches. In those passages, the birds represent the nations gathered under the protection of the kingdom, and it seems that Jesus is referring to the coming of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. But the main point of the parable lies very simply in the huge extent to which the kingdom has developed from such small beginnings. 
or when Luke was writing, will develop. Now we look back and we can see that has been the case. So although the kingdom of heaven will seem to have had a very insignificant beginning, it will eventually spread throughout the world and people of all nations will find rest in it. So there's a brief map of the Roman Empire. The Gospel's geographical starting point was in Judea, which in Roman eyes was, okay, it was one up from kind of Britannia, you know, and Hadrian's Wall. It was one up from that, because that was the pits, really, to go to as a Roman. But it was a pretty tiny, insignificant little province on the eastern edge of the Roman Empire. And certainly in Jesus' day, when Jesus was talking like this, and if people did understand him, they must have thought, you're dreaming. But by 60 AD, perhaps when uh, Luke is writing, they were beginning to see, yeah, this is coming true. In spite of persecution, opposition, and violence from religious leaders, Roman emperors and others, Christianity spread and increased. Country after country in the then known world was reached for the gospel, and church after church was planted. You read the book of Acts, it just tells us how the gospel spread in one direction, from basically from Jerusalem to Rome. There were, of course, other apostles taking it in other directions, to places like Armenia in the north, to India in the east, to Ethiopia in the south, all at the same time that Paul and Peter were taking it westward to Rome. What had happened on the day of Pentecost when Jews from all over the Roman Empire and elsewhere had come to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, they heard the apostles preaching and they responded to their preaching and they repented and believed, and they too were reconnected with God through Jesus Christ. And of course, they then, those 3,000, went home. And as they went home, they took the gospel with them to their local synagogues. And Jews there embraced the faith. And then the God-fearing synagogue fringe, who were fed up with polytheistic nonsense, and were drawn to the monotheism, the one God of the Jews, and then to Christ. The first Gentile church was established in Antioch, which is just on the border of Turkey and Syria today. And it was there that uh, the first disciples were called Christians. And we read in Acts 10, 34, God does not show favoritism, but accepts people from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You see, wherever anyone is from, there is a home for you in the kingdom of God. It's accessed simply by repentance recognizing our rebellion against the one true God and asking for his forgiveness, believing that he's able to forgive us. Our fellowship here at St. Mary's, as I've mentioned a number of times, is made up of around 25 different nationalities. 
So we are living evidence that what Jesus said is true. The kingdom started off like a little mushroom, a mustard seed, which grew into an enormous tree, relatively speaking. That has come true. The Apostle Paul set off on various missionary journeys. I mean, there's the first one, uh, where he sort of confined himself largely to Cyprus and Turkey and, uh, and Syria. And then there was a second one, which uh, went on to sort of uh, like um, what is today Greece. And then much the third one is much the same sort of area, but in a sort of different order. And then he made his final journey to, from Israel, from Jerusalem to Rome, island hopping. You know, I don't envy his outcome, but I envy his kind of journey. Um, Cyprus, Crete, Malta, and then Rome. And on the way, and when he was in Rome, he wrote letters to the Christian communities scattered all around the eastern Mediterranean. Some Roman emperors and heathen philosophers had tried in vain to check the progress of Christianity. But as uh, J.C. Ryle, first bishop of Liverpool, points out, they might as well have tried to stop the tide from flowing or the sun from rising. In a few hundred years, the religion of the despised Nazarene had overrun the world. The Christian faith was professed by many in Turkey, Greece, what is today the Balkans, Italy, North Africa, Europe, as far afield as the other places I mentioned earlier. The kingdom might have looked insignificant to Jesus' hearers and to the readers even of Luke's Gospel 30 years after, but it wasn't to stay that way. Perhaps it looks insignificant to us here in Britain today, this evening, but it isn't when you look worldwide. The growth of the kingdom and the progress of the gospel continues today. According to Wikipedia, which is not a Christian source, the number of people who are willing to call themselves, to be identified as Christians in the world today, stands at 2.4 billion out of a world population that now numbers 7.2 billion. That is 33% or a third. And 10% of the entire world are evangelical Christians like us. The darker areas of purple have the greater percentage of Christians in the population. Now most nations today, in fact probably all of them, have been reached with the gospel, but not every people group there are apparently still 4,500 languages that the scriptures need to be translated into. And 1,200 of them, praise God, are in preparation right now. If you think just 130 years ago, there were no Christians in Korea. Now half of South Korea are Christians. The same would be true of much of sub-Saharan Africa and of South America. So some challenges to us. How will you choose if you've not already done so? Are you for Jesus and his gospel and his uh, extending kingdom? 
or are you against him, resisting him? I ask you, on what grounds will you join with him in expanding his enterprise or not? Are you going to be with the winners or are you, like some of those who opposed him in the first century, destined to remain a loser? And there are several other challenges for us who have aligned ourselves with Christ. Let us learn never to despair of any work for Christ because its beginnings are small. Whether, for example, we're the only Christian teacher in a school and you're trying to establish a Christian union. Vernon Wilkins, who you know, who we've supported for many years, who was back visiting us in the last year from Jordan. Um, he was a school teacher before he was ordained. And three young guys in his uh, little Christian union became Christians. And they minister now at St. Ebbs in Oxford, in Jesmond in Newcastle, and head up missionary training for the Anglican Church in Australia. They're Vaughan Roberts, Ian Garrett, and David Williams. Small beginnings, but significant effect. Or maybe you're the only Christian in your place of work, and you're seeking to be a faithful example of a Christian, a credit to Christ, and prepared should you be asked to give the hope that is within you. Or maybe you're pioneering a new house group with small numbers, and the membership are erratic in their attendance and don't seem to sort of twig what you're trying to quite teach them. Or maybe you are a lone reformer in the midst of a fallen church, as some of us try to be. Well, let us remember this parable and take courage. As the Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn once said, one word of truth outweighs the whole world. And as Ryle said of Martin Luther, one man with the living seed of God's truth on his side, like Luther, may turn a nation upside down. If God is with him, none shall stand against him. In spite of men and devils, the seed that he sows shall become a great tree. Or Dick France, who was one-time principal of Wycliffe Hall, Oxford, says, To them and to us today, who may expect God to act dramatically and without delay, Jesus points out that the full growth is assured from the moment the seed is sown. However unpromising its appearance and whatever opposition it may meet in its development, the way of God is not that of ostentation, but of ultimate success. Little is great where God is at work. Which leads us on very briefly to the second parable, the parable of the yeast. This is really Mary Berry territory, so I, um, I think I understand how bread is made. I did check it out with a couple of people. So, Jesus again asks them a question. What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? Answer that he gives. It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it works 
all through the dough. Again, the contrast is between the tiny quantity of yeast and the size of its effect. So they would keep a small piece of fermented dough bread over from the day before. And then they would add it to the new batch of flour and water the next day. Just a little bit from the day before, a little bit of fermented dough mixed in with a large amount of flour and water transforms the whole. Now I've kind of read in a few commentaries that a measure is likely to have been uh, 13 litres. So three measures is nearly 40 litres. And that apparently would be enough to make about 160 bread rolls for 160 people from a tiny little bit of fermented dough. And so too with the kingdom of God. Obscure and hidden, it will pervade society and pervade the whole world. As yeast permeates a batch of dough, so the kingdom spreads through a person's life and throughout society. God transforms people and they then transform society. The parable shows the spread of the gospel in a person's life. And it's through that life that then society changes. The first beginnings of a work of grace in someone's life who's beginning to uh, have a vacuum, a God-shaped vacuum, is often very small. It's like that mixture of yeast with that lump of dough. You may, for example, come across somebody whose life is very attractive. You recognize that they have something that you don't have and what they have seems to be something you want to have but you don't know quite what it is that they do have. It might be a single verse from the Bible that you come across. It might be a sentence in a sermon. It might be a talk from somebody that you don't know at M&M or at Dorset Venture. Or it might be an act of kindness you receive from a Christian. Often such things are starting points in those who go on to receive Christ. The work of grace will gradually leaven the whole lump as we become, first of all, convinced of the truth of the gospel. Then we are convicted of our own rebellion against God and the things we consequently do wrong. And then we come to turn and we are converted. We turn to him. Wherever a real work of the Holy Spirit begins in the heart, the whole character is gradually leavened and changed. The Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come, and all this is from God. Do you or have you identified with that? with a gradual, growing, spreading, increasing, leavening process going on in you. Well, that is the work of Holy Scripture and the Holy Spirit, convincing you of the truth, convicting you of sin, and causing you to turn. Let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we live 2,000 years later and that we have the great advantage of seeing your words come to be true. And we marvel at that. And we also recognize your methods, how you made such an impact when you came to earth, but how since then you have worked through the small things which are ourselves, but how through millions of Christians over time you have reached the whole world and brought many back to yourself, including us. We are grateful. Amen. <laughs>